You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. It's Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and I'm back from a break. I've recently changed jobs, and my new work required me to do some intensive training and certification, which I've now completed. So I'm able to record episodes again. And I think you'll enjoy this one, featuring a return guest, scientist and author, Darren Nash. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. All right, so Monster Talk's excited to welcome back Darren Nash, paleontologist and author of the popular Tetrapod Zoology blog and co-host of the Tetrapod Zoology podcasts. Tetzoo.com is where you can go to hear that, along with John Conway. The Tetrapod Zoology podcast, which I still stubbornly maintain should be called the Tetrapodcast, uh, is a great show. We've actually done a special where we did a uh, co-recording. Darren's here to discuss his latest book in well over a week, Cryptozoologicon. And, of course, I'm joking about that, but it is good to see that someone in the science field of the side of the house is producing content at a rate at least approaching that of Nick Redford. So, the Cryptozoologicon. <laughs> Redford must be stopped. Well, what's, the, what's the book about? Um, well, um, where do I start? We, we published a book uh, last year called All Yesterdays which was uh, basically about speculation in paleontological depiction of animals, in paleo art. Uh, There's all these things that... that There's a traditional way of depicting something. Let's say Tyrannosaurus attacking Triceratops, familiar image. But many of the the ideas that we see being perpetuated are often often quite poorly founded. Often they are just speculations. And we basically said, you know, you think of all the things that living animals do that you might not have... You wouldn't know about from the fossil record. There's so many possibilities that aren't really explored. So this book was specifically saying here are speculations on things that we haven't really seen explored before. Now, that that approach to paleontology, to the depiction of extinct animals, appeals also to our interest in cryptozoology, the study of mystery animals, because a, a major component of cryptozoology is is speculation. I mean, you think about any ideas that people have developed about 
ident- the identities of mystery creatures, the the ideas they come up with explaining the evolution, the biology, the ecology of mystery creatures. Um, they are essentially exercises in speculative zoology, speculative biology, speculations about about um, yeah what these animals might be and, and the stories behind their evolution and biology, how they might work as organisms. So um, this book, The Cryptozoologicon, is it's led by the artwork. The idea is we took a bunch of mystery animals, a bunch of cryptids, if you want to use that term, and um, tried to come up with you know novel uh, speculative interpretations of what they what they could be. And initially the idea was to accompany each beautiful illustration. John Conway and, and Memo Kozman are the illustrators. Um, I can draw, but I'm not really an artist. And uh, the idea was to just accompany each illustration with, you know, like a hundred words or something. But um, before we knew it, we ended up with great quantities of text um, because we wanted to explain the speculations that we explored. And then you needed to put in a bit of background, you know, like what, what the creature's meant to be. And then you also needed to, I was like, hold on, well, then you also need to evaluate it. You need to say what, what we actually think about, it. you know, where does the evidence take us with regard to the reality or otherwise of these creatures. And so we've ended up producing quite a lengthy book that's got a lot of text in it, as well as some pretty pictures. I liked it. I mean, I, I've got it. I bought the digital copy. Uh, and, of course, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can buy a tangible copy as well, though. Um, what do you think this book offers that most cryptozoology books don't? And what's different about your book? Yeah, what's different about it? Um, I should say, by the way, that it's only the first of, uh, well, there's definitely going to be two and, and maybe more in the future. And, and that, that reason is because we produce so much content that um, due to the, the on-demand publishing software, the platform that we use, uh, there's, there's a constraint in pricing. Um, if we produced a really big book, it would just be hugely expensive. And we thought, no, no, we can't have this. So we have to split it up into two. So this is volume one. Volume two is going to come along. Um, most artwork that you'll find in cryptozoology books is kind of pretty tired, pretty boring. Uh, even the, the great classic books that everyone's got, you know, you see the same old black and white drawings being trotted out. That's not to say there aren't some very good um, artists who do depict cryptozoological animals. Uh, regularly some of them almost seem to make a living from this but um yeah we wanted some like you know brand new uh innovative pretty artwork and um that's obviously what john and memo do so so that's new a, a bunch of like big uh, pretty uh, attractive um colorful uh, depictions of, of cryptids obscure and well-known ones i mean we, we run the whole the whole range in this book from familiar mystery animals to really obscure ones um, and then also I kind of think that, well, the speculative thing. So we've tried to explore new ideas that haven't been discussed before. We, we do make it very clear in the book, and, and I, I hope it's clear from everything that we've said about the book uh, and everything that other people have said about the book, it's clear that our speculations are not meant to be taken seriously. We are kind of being a bit tongue-in-cheek about some of these ideas, coming up with alternative explanations for, for cryptids. Um, but that's allowed us to explore and discuss things to do with the evolutionary history of animals that isn't well known certainly isn't well known to people who are interested in mystery animals and isn't well known to people who are you know science buffs skeptics fans of that kind of stuff in any in any way any case you know everything from hominid evolution to the history of dinosaurs and other similar animals and the diversity of living animals as well i hope there's a lot of new content there and then also our skeptical evaluation of the creatures i, I think also we um, 
it's kind of ironic that that we uh, and and a complete coincidence, I should add, that we worked on this book at the same time as uh, Dan Daniel um, Loxon and Donald Prothero have their new book, Abominable Science. You know, because that's obviously come out. That's that's a new book that's only been out for a few months. Um, that's obviously a uh, a scholarly um, critical look at cryptozoology. Our approach is kind of similar. You know, we come from a, a similar place in terms of a skeptical part of the universe. And um, so we've kind of said similar things about, you know, if you look critically at the evidence that we have for these alleged cryptids, um, you know, we're, we're honest. I would say, I, I always try and say, you know, we're honest skeptics. You know, you don't, you, you don't dismiss something. You go, where does the evidence take you? There's a, there's a few cases where we're sort of on the fence, open-ended. You can't dismiss this, some of these animals out of hand. We need more evidence. But there are others where I think you can reject them out of hand. There's no evidence. All the evidence is a joke. And um, we haven't really... What's the right way of saying it? We haven't um, been shy in terms of basically saying that some of the people who've written about cryptids, cryptozoology, who are regarded as um, you know big people in the field, icons of the field, in actual fact... You look at some of the work that they did, some of the stuff they've said. It, there are some big problems in what the, the rigor of their of their work. And Bernard Hooverman is the classic example. Um, you know, like like many people interested in cryptozoology, I grew up reading his books and have a great affection for them. But um, this kind of idea that you encounter within the cryptozoological community—that he's some mighty scholar who was the most brilliant researcher on the planet—I'm <laughs> um, afraid. <laughs> Always try and choose my words carefully, but uh, it just there there are there are, there are reasons to, to question that uh, that particular view of Hooverman's, and we and we've said this in the book. We've said you know there's he compiled this case for this given mystery animal, but well no he got that wrong. No he was like thirty years out of date on that, and and no he was clearly making a big logical error in putting this and this putting two and five together and making six here and um, that kind of stuff. So yeah. Yeah, Ivan Sanderson had feet of clay too, with which uh, they made giant penguin footprints on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered what you, where you were going to with that. Yes, yes. And, he, and did you read the thing about he actually claimed to have seen see one of the giant penguins as well? I read yeah. that uh, in your book today. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I had not heard that before. In fact, there was a lot of new material for me. I, I, I mean, some of the creatures you covered, I had never heard of at all, and uh, I feel like I'm, I'm fairly well read in the field. It would be handy if you could name off the creatures that you cover. That would be... Uh... Okay, so uh, there's, there's no real order to the way they're treated in the book. Because some of them do seem to... Seem to be, well, for example, okay, so we start with... We've got quite a lengthy introduction, which covers the general history of cryptozoology and stuff. Uh, the row or the row, I don't know how you say it, but this, uh, this, this uh, mystery giant reptile from New Guinea, known only from a single report, which has always been regarded as a hoax, but we thought there was interesting stuff to say about it. Say about it. The... Candy Island Monster, pretty obscure. There's, there's, there's a place here in England called Essex, which has got a reputation for being, as we say in the United Kingdom, a bit of a dump. <laughs> and uh, it's, I'm sorry to anyone from Essex who's listening. The, the Chubacabra, or Chubacabras, however you want to say it, um, Watariki, which is a, a, an alleged amphibious mammal from New Zealand. The Beast of Gévaudan, which also, I don't know how to pronounce that. I no, you did pretty good, I think. Gévaudan. <laughs> Again, amazing story. Just blown away with that story. It's incredible. Uh, the Bunyip, the Zoyomaro creature, 
again, you know, everyone knows that, and most people would not really regard that as a cryptid. But again, it's an interesting thing you can say about it within the context of. Mm, we've covered that on, uh, on Monster Talk. So. Oh, I knew that. Yes, I knew that. Yes. Um, <laughs> Mobile, which episode? I must go back. It goes way back. It was like four, right. like three or four. It was really early on. Yeah. Was it? What, did you talk to Glenn Cuban? We sure did. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mobile, Mobile, Mobile. One of these um, Congolese water monsters discussed by <laughs> the creature. So nice, they named it thrice. <laughs> <laughs> what does what does this? Yeah, what does this mean if it's got three names? Very strange. And um, I, I think this is a good moment to say that it was described. We only know about this animal thanks to Roy Mackle. And of course, today, then if you've seen, I did. I was very sad to see that uh, he's allegedly passed away. Yeah, yeah, sad news. Yeah. Um, he, he haven't heard anything from him for a while, so this isn't a surprise. And there was a rumor a couple of years ago, actually, that um, that he was he he was with us no more, but it seems to be confirmed. So yeah. Yeah, people are talking about that today. So uh, R.I.P. Uh, Roy Mackle, Professor Roy Mackle, uh, long neck seal, uh, Kelpie, uh, dingo neck. Do you know what a dingo neck is? Would you know if you hadn't read the book? I would not have known had I not read the book. <laughs> so. Uh, what, what do I say? Do I say to people you have to read the book to find out, or you do should, I tell yes. them what? It is? Yeah, no, I think you should leave mysteries here. What? <laughs> Cad- Cadbrosaurus, fairly familiar. Tizarek, again, pretty obscure. It's a kind of water monster, um, a marine thing. The Buru, the hoop snake. Uh, I, oh, by the way, I loved that you covered the hoop snake. Hoop snakes and joint snakes. Uh, my grandmother told me about growing up, and uh, and and I don't. You didn't cover joint snakes, but. Uh, have you heard of those? No. Really yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because I suspect it's probably a real animal. Um, but she described it as, as a snake called a joint snake. And, and it looks like a regular snake. But when you get near it or scare it, it falls into pieces. And all the pieces wriggle. So she's describing something like a, like a lizard tail falling off. So I thought I maybe, maybe, perhaps it's, it's uh, just a sort of folk description of some real uh, huh. legless lizard, right? But... The, the catch is, uh, in the folklore, the snake will then reassemble itself when the danger's passed. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is quite a common motif in stories about, um, it's said that if you, uh, well, the, the, the legend uh, in, in, here in the UK, we have this story of the, this thing called the lantern worm. I'm sure you've, you've heard of this story. This um, creature that was captured in a well and um, uh, the Earl of Lambton. Now, the Earl of Lambton is said to have discarded this ugly worm into into a well, and then when he came back from the Crusades or something, it had turned into a giant monster that would come out of the well and eat virgins and sheep and such. And he had to wear a special spiky suit of armor in order to kill it. And he had to make sure when he killed it that he cut it up into bits. Uh, and he had to do it in a place where there was fast flowing water because if he didn't, the bits would rejoin and the animal would, would be okay. And the similar thing is said if you cut snakes into bits, they're said to rejoin maybe after sunset or something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, definitely heard that before. And the, um, there's a, there's a bunch of, um, anguid lizards, um, uh, glass, related to alligator lizards and slow worms, those kinds of animals. Um, what's their common name? They're called glass snakes. Yes, glass snakes. In, in Europe. Right, yeah, because they're, they're North American ones. I can't remember. I suppose they're called glass snakes as well, are they? They are. But, um, yeah, they, they, they look they look snake-like, but snakes actually have really short tails. But these animals, not being snakes at all, being anguid lizards, they have really long tails, and um, and they shed the tail as a defensive mechanism, but they don't shed the tail in one piece. It breaks up into four or five 
independent bits, hence the name glass lizard, because they're meant to fracture into bits. So you could imagine you, one of these animals looks like a snake, but seems to break into bits. And those bits, you know, the tail may be, I don't know, a third or half the length of the whole animal. So um, people could imagine that they were seeing a snake break into bits. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe you're onto something there. Maybe that's where the legend comes from. But uh, yeah. So yeah, hoop snake, bit of a weird choice, but there you go. We went with it. Megalodon, megatooth shark, um, the a-hole, a giant yeah, bat-like thing. Yeah, the a-hole. So now that you've written a chapter, would you consider yourself to be a complete a-hole expert? yes (laughs) excellent well well i wouldn't i wouldn't actually (laughs) but uh, in seriousness (laughs) there is a there there was one of these one of these tv series is What's the correct plural for series? I never know how to say it. Oh, I don't know. I assume it's series. <laughs> series. One of, the, one of these, you know, like one of these things where people, what are they, what are they called? You know, there are a whole bunch of these TV shows where people go around the world allegedly looking for mystery beasts. Sure. They potter around in the jungle and don't find anything. Mystery well, there shows. Was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there was an episode of one of those devoted to the a-hole. And um, my understanding from the literature is that there are only two or three accounts which come from Ivan Sanderson. But apparently in this documentary, they recorded a couple more. They, they found a, a few more um, of these sightings. But, well, to be honest, who's to say how reliable that is? Yeah. I mean, I, can, I, I would be slightly suspicious that if they went into the... We certainly know from other documentaries that they basically get people to say stuff that they want. True. So, True. Uh, yeah. So I, I think I we've learned... <laughs> we've talked to quite a few people who were on uh, Monster Quest... And uh, that that seemed to be they, they really struggled to get them to fit the narrative they had already put together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so uh, finally, Trinity Alps salamander. So a, a giant salamander from the Trinity Alps. That's, that's California, I think, isn't it? Um, goat man. Yeah, you said goat man. Was that was that a serious chapter or was that satire? <laughs> i had to think about it i had to think about that yeah that's good that's good uh yeah uh, um yeah it was well well the, the title the uh the, that section is subtitled half man half goat half serious <laughs> so we should have done that half satire half, half satire very good, very good edition, right yeah i was definitely definitely i, I love i love one of the stories of uh so well, I'll, I'll give some details away on this particular mystery creature, but, but um, so Goatman is one of these one of these mystery creatures where uh, different people in different parts of North America have come up with legends of in quotes Goatman in, independently. So it's not as if there's one entity that lives in Detroit or something, uh, but it's different places have come up with their own Goatman legends, and um, all of which are nonsense. Uh, one of them is meant to be the original one is meant to be like a, a, a Sasquatch type creature from you know somewhere in the, the south. It was the Carolinas? Um, east. Yeah, that's it, somewhere like that. Yeah, and then but then there's others that are meant to be. There's one that's meant to be um, uh, a laboratory experiment gone wrong. Some kind of crazy guy, a bit like the lizard in Spider-Man. You know, but, but a goat instead of a lizard <laughs> wears a lab coat and uh, <laughs> carries an axe, and it's very dangerous. <laughs> and, um, and so we decided to, to uh, yeah, to run with this. What, what if, what if there really was a goat man 
My, my, my favorite story, I think it's from Oregon, is uh, the media said that they found the goat man. <laughs> I remember that very well, right? The, the goat man was being filmed from a helicopter and it turned out to be a guy disguised as a goat because he was training for hunting mountain goats. Um, so, uh, and, But they called him the goat man, so it became somehow involved in the goat man saga. Um, yeah, I thought the subtext of, of the goat man legend was that that goats are very promiscuous. That's uh, <laughs> that's what I always pick. I always assumed that was the implication that that somewhere there was a lonely farmer and a and a very open minded goat. So, <laughs> so goat goat human hybrid. We didn't cover that hypothesis. Well, but, uh, I'll, I'll, this is interesting though because a lot of cryptozoology, the um, the creature components themselves come from eyewitnesses accounts or, or legends and and not from uh physical samples i mean obviously the washed up on the shore dead animals are the exception to that but um because of that um you the speculation about what what these creatures might be from the cryptozoology side is not as informed as what you have in this book this the the speculation portion of each chapter i thought this is really the first opportunity to get a um even though some of them are quite amusing and silly, you do take a very uh, reality-based approach to your speculation, I think. Yeah, well, well, I'm pleased to hear you say it. Thank you very much. But, yeah, um, well, there's a couple of things to, you could say about that. One is that I think that some of the ideas that have kind of become mainstream in the cryptozoological literature, you see them being repeated again and again and again, is they're quite, they're quite tired um, and and boring you see the same ideas being repeated again and again and again so so that 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 congolese creature discussed by roy mackle the mobile 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 he comes up with a suggestion in his 1987 book a living dinosaur he says that <clears throat> so the mobile 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 supposedly two people described how they saw a water creature with planks on its back um, and and he immediately came up with the idea of it being like a stegosaur type animal, and then we see that idea being repeated again and again and again in all the cryptozoology books, as if that's the only thing people can think of. And it's come on, if you're gonna come up with a, a, a an alternative explanation for that phenomenon, there's there's a whole there's a whole list of other things you've got to you've got to consider. And and as you'll know, I think you and I spoke about this before when we when we did a podcast, a tetrapodology podcast. But there's other things you can come up with that that are better in some ways, you know, better explanations than the one we keep seeing repeated again and again and again. Um, there's, I mean, I think part, part of the problem with some of these ideas in cryptozoology is that most people who produce cryptozoological literature, now again, I'm going to try and be careful how I say this, but because, putting this in the wrong order, but here I go, yeah, cryptozoology has always involved, you know, people that are, um, qualified scientists, you know, there's lots of people who are tremendously knowledgeable about zoology and biology and the diversity of animals. Lots of those people are involved in cryptozoology. However, many other people who produce cryptozoological books are not, um, you know, trained. Uh, they're not, they're, it's zoologically, they're not zoological experts. They don't necessarily know that much about animals. I'm not saying there's anything no, no, wrong no, with that. No, no, no. Let me interject here. Let's, let me remind people that Brian Regal described it as a split between crackpots and eggheads. And then we'll, <laughs> we'll put the blame there and you can move forward. <laughs> okay, Brian, as Brian said, um, he is solely responsible yeah, for, for, for this view. But um, I think because, because there's so much of an overlap between cryptozoology and sociology, psychology, anthropology, all these other fields, I can understand why... 
some of the uh, most prolific cryptozoological authors aren't, aren't really coming uh, to the subject from the, from the zoological perspective. They're coming at it from the human interest angle. And um, so that means there often isn't a zoological expertise displayed in people's speculations and evaluation of cases. And people are often, you know, not aware of what's been said about animals in the technical literature. They're not aware of, you know, ideas about evolution and, and uh, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I, th I think in, in an approach to cryptozoology, we need to follow... Um, we should follow what what Hoovermans said. He 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 was a, a qualified zoologist, and he said that um, you know um, it was meant to be part of the zoological sciences. And uh, I mean, there is a big problem in this view in that it kind of assumes to start with that cryptids are flesh and blood animals. That itself is a big problem with the, with the whole area. But um, yeah, you're supposed to be interpreting these things within a zoological framework. So you've got to have like the biology and evolution smarts in the first place. And yeah, we're often not seeing that. So we've tried in the book to um, to incorporate that much that that stuff as much as possible. Often incorporating totally totally new new ways of looking at creatures. So the a hole, that giant bat like thing. Yeah, when people write about it, when cryptozoologists write about, it, they say, "Ooh, it's a giant bat, and it could be the biggest bat ever." But they don't say, "Well, there's these new ideas on bat evolution, which suggests that there's this weird group of bats that might conceivably." possess a bunch of features that do seem consistent with what you see in the A-Hall. You don't see that in the cryptozoology literature because the cryptozoologists tend not to know about it. So some of these ideas that we explore in the book, yeah, they are they are novel, they inform they are informed by new stuff that we know about because it's you know, I'm a working paleozoologist. I publish technical stuff about uh, fossil and living animals and um, John and Memo are both um, Specialist technical artists who uh, keep up to date with this stuff as well. So uh, I think I think we're um, uh, one of my big problems with the cryptozoology literature has always been that most of the you know well not most but a lot of the ideas in it are, are just not coming from a properly informed source and they're decades out of date. And and this was true of Bernard Hoovermans himself. I mean he was saying stuff when he was he was when he was writing his books in the fifties. He was saying stuff in the fifties. That was known to be wrong in the 1930s. So it's like, come on, he he was not. Very very few of us can be up to date uh, on you know uh, an area as vast as animals, <laughs> the living world. You know, can you really keep up with absolutely everything? That's a, that's really really hard. And um, to be trained in you know most of us are trained in one small thing, and then to to uh, say say bold, brave things about uh, yeah, some area of expertise that's long away, far away from, from your actual area of expertise can be dangerous. It can get you into trouble. And uh, this definitely has happened. Oh, with, sure. Um, yeah. I, I think yeah. Uh, uh, an unwarranted confidence in one's uh, intelligences <laughs> and skills can, can lead to all kinds of interesting and horrible conclusions in your career. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I just keep telling people how stupid I am and, and that I know it'll work well, I mean, out. Humility and self-deprecation are good qualities, or at least I believe they are. Um, but but uh, well, let me ask this. So why do you think it is that so few technically uh, grounded people uh, in your field uh, maintain that sense of wonder about monsters? <laughs> do you ever sit around with paleontologists and, 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 and talk about this sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a, It's quite a... It's quite a popular area, um, as is um, 
you know, an interest in monsters from sci-fi movies and comic books and stuff. So, so the idea that 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 uh, scientists uh, don't do that sort of thing is actually just a uh, bad uh, stereotype. Until you've just told me about it, I wasn't aware that this was a stereotype. <laughs> oh yeah, you, you haven't read on the cryptozoology blogs about how scientists living in their you know, ivory towers of academia they dismiss all things wonderful and. You've never noticed, you've never run into that trope, seriously? Oh, my God. Um, well, the, the human experience is, is complicated. It's difficult to I generalize about people. Yeah, well, I say scientists. I mean, monster denialists. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I mean, yeah, but, but because on, on the one hand, I could say I, I know a load of, you know, scientists who are, with all due respect, they might be very nice people, but they're actually very boring. They're not interested in anything that overlaps with the, you know, like my mother, my mother's approach. She would say, she would say, what are you interested in that rubbish? I don't want to watch aliens or Terminator. Well, I rubbish, turn it off. I want to watch Coronation Street or Emmerdale Farm or the news or something. Sorry, those references might have been over your head, but the references are going to be boring British soap operas. Um, it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Um, the, uh, there is that kind of attitude, yeah. In like, oh, some scientists want to be serious, and and they're fairly straight people. They, yeah, don't want to be, don't want to, they don't have an interest in this kind of stuff. But I would say, the majority, uh, I, I think, of of, of uh, people I know who are you know passionate and interested about this stuff. I mean, I think of how many scientists I know that went to see Jurassic Park or Godzilla or are excited about the new Godzilla movie, you know, that kind of thing. We're talking about a significant percentage of people. There's always been a big interest in speculative evolution. All the ideas about possible alternative trajectories of evolution and possible animals in the, the future and what about the things we don't know about from the past, I, I would say that's a, that's a big draw. And there is so much overlap between that kind of interest and... Um, the, the the interest in in mystery animals so um so far as i'm concerned this is kind of like a major part of not something we think about on an hourly basis because you know working on working very hard but um but yeah certainly something people think of talk about when they're having a beer and um yeah I, i'm not familiar with a stereotype that um that, that scientists in general are not interested in this stuff and to to 
I'm think I, I kind of thinking about Charles Paxton, who I know quite well. He's a, technically a fisheries ecologist, works on statistics of how fisheries work, which. Sorry, Charles, but incredibly boring, you know, really sort of dry, <laughs> dry statistics-based stuff. But when he talks to you about um, his interest in all of our ideas about, about monsters and uh, spe- cryptozoology and, and speculations about animals that might exist, you know, he says that an, an interest in talking about, you know, people's ideas about monsters is something really important and, and really kind of, you know, basic to the, the whole scientific drive because you're you're telling people you're 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 actually considering an area that's basically to do with wonder of the of the unknown like a fascination in sort of you know things that things that might be what stuff that's really exciting um no matter how where you are on the on the the science scale whether you're like a, a statistician or whether you're someone with just a casual interest um so um yeah it's it's important it's something that like incites wonder and makes us think and and Speculative evolution, any and any ideas related to speculation and evolution are are important because they do lead us to ask questions about the real world. You know, when in in doing this this book, the Cryptozoologicon, John Memo and myself, we've said that we some of these creatures, some some of these cryptozoological creatures, um, we can be pretty confident they don't really exist, and there are good reasons why they don't exist. But in ask so so why don't they exist? Well, that's not just a hunch. That's kind of there's a good idea why you know a certain why there probably aren't you know six hundred foot long giant serpents off the coast of New England. You know, there's probably a good reason why that isn't the case, and you can come up with a set of specific questions and answers as to why that isn't why that is or is not the case. Do you see? Do you see what I mean? There's, it leads you to ask valid questions about the way the world works oh, and, and about biology yeah. and about evolution. Yeah. So I, okay, that that was somewhat of a forced question because I mean, as a, uh, uh, I, well, I just happen to know for a fact that many of our listeners are teachers or working scientists, so and they still listen and we talk about monsters. So I, I know it's not true, but I keep encountering it on uh, all kinds of uh, cryptozoology message boards. It just seems to be a recurring stereotype, uh, of, of, and it's like it's the idea that uh, science rejects things that aren't new, but everything I've seen from working scientists is they're looking for things that would overturn a paradigm. They're looking for things that are new and wonderful and different. I would say this is, I, I don't, I don't know how understood, how appreciated it is outside of the, the academic community. And I mean, academic community in the broadest possible sense, you know, including everyone who's interested in anything to do with that you call academic, but how I don't get, I don't really appreciate how well known it is outside that bunch of people that when you're inside it, it, particularly if you're like a, if you're a researcher like myself, or if you're, you know, a professor or if you're involved in anything to do with research, what are you hoping to find what what is the point of what you do and in a nutshell the idea is well we're looking for the next big thing the big thing that changes everything so and and we're all i i kind of compared it to what i call lego bricks i think you, you call them legos don't you That's legos right. mm-hmm. um, okay so it, science is like a giant grandiose lego structure and and over time thousands and thousands tens of thousands if not millions of individual people have added little bricks to this giant structure and if you're you know a lucky scientist in in your career you'll get to add like a few little little bricks to one of the buttresses of one of the sidewalls you know you'll you'll make a tiny contribution um that will be minuscule on the scale of things but what people want to do is they want to actually 
smash down a whole wall or smash down half <laughs> the structure and like rebuild it. It's like people want to, how do we come up with these, well, we call them informally a group of researchers I'm involved in, we call them game changers. Like, oh, I've got a real game changer mm-hmm. idea here. You want the next thing. So of course, of course people are taken seriously the, the possibility that, you know, hey, if Sasquatch does exist, well, <laughs> we're down, we've got to say something about it. We're going to do something about it if we do find some compelling gee whiz game changer data or oh my god that sea serpent carcass isn't a rotting shark it actually is a sea serpent carcass so i don't need to tell you this i don't need to tell your listeners this but the general idea that scientists are kind of sitting on things keeping them quiet i mean (laughs) I, i i heard a claim a couple of months ago that um some people involved in tiger conservation in sumatra had um they were actually had a body of orang pendek and they were keeping it quiet and I was like, excuse me, you're talking about people who are involved in the conservation of an area that basically is being raised to the ground for the palm oil industry or something. Do you not think that if they actually had something as game-changery, as significant <laughs> as the body of a new hominid, don't you think they would do something about that immediately? They wouldn't sit on it at all. They would rush into print with something like that. Um so, yeah, so many stereotypes about the way science works and oh, there's a whole list of things, you know. Um, yeah, don't get me started. But, uh, <laughs> no, but no, yes. no. Well, I'm, actually, I wanted to get you started. Thank you for sharing all that. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. So first of all, first of all, the game changer concept. So any ideas about conspiracies of silence, people sitting on data, absolute rubbish, absolute rubbish. That is not how... There are no conspiracies in science. That's not how it works. And and one reason that it it doesn't work, and I I may be repeating myself here, is basically because the nature of science is is pretty brutal. It's it's red in tooth and claw. It's people like trying to, you know, get one over on colleagues and and be the one who gives the best talk at the international conference and be the one who gets the big paper. Um all that kind of stuff. So so it's very it's very driven. I mean it's science is 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 about is about people it's yes it's all about getting bits of evidence together and coming up with conclusions based on the evidence and you have to be able to any statement you make obviously has to be backed up by by data that's a given you know um that is the basic premise of science that's what makes it different from other areas of the human experience religion for example so um yeah if people have new data they're, they're going to act on it. They want to act on it. So any ideas about, about conspiracies or silence sitting on data? Absolutely ridiculous. This is about people trying to do well for themselves, trying to do well for their research groups, blah, 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 blah. That kind of leads us to, to money. So the idea, first of all, that scientists are Scrooge McDuck, six vast, <laughs> vast caverns of wealth sitting around on their huge, sitting on their enormous piles of cash, vast sums of money they can, they can, uh, waste away their money on some frivolous bit of research. Um, excuse me, what planet, anyone who says that, what planet are you living on? Do you, do you not realize how, firstly, how low scientists' wages are? Um, they're not paid as poorly as people that work at, you know, McDonald's or KFC or something, but they are, <laughs> there is not money in science. Do not go into science if you are financially driven. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, um, and grant money. I mean, the situation at the moment, the economic crisis is 
particularly bad at the moment uh, but for our ordinarily darren's new uh, series on don't go into science motivational speaking uh, <laughs> <laughs> his lecture series the next ted talk <laughs> yeah yeah maybe i i can see i can see a thing in, in that yes um i wouldn't make any money from it though so, uh, so why but, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm, <laughs> i might do it anyway i'm not financially nothing i do is related to money whatsoever but um no just the the idea that that's that there's any financial motivations science i mean don't get me wrong of course there are rich scientists and of course there are lots of people in science who've gone into science because they have a fairly easy life yeah, but, money but to start with. There, there may be rich scientists but they didn't get rich by doing science no no right. uh, t- yeah there's literally one or two yeah. people who um yes have been they've been very lucky um but um yes absolutely so um but it's so rewarding to find things out yeah yeah and just and just the, your the, family yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not go there. But um, maybe let's pretend this is a third point. Then the um, the fact that what motivates us to do to do science, to to come up with new stuff, to announce the th- to research the things we do. Well, partly we do f- deliberately find sexy things that we think we can get grant money for, and the, I don't know if people know, but the rate of success for grants is somewhere i think it's like eight percent success right or something ridiculous so I mean, you, you buy a lottery ticket every time you do a grant proposal <laughs> and you're probably more likely to win yeah yeah I, it's just it's just crazy I, i've i did get a, a grant app a successful grant application in um this year but the money has yet to has yet to materialize so it's um and we're not talking about a lot of money anyway we're talking about enough to cover a, a few um research trips and and stuff um but what what motivates us to do stuff? I mean, yeah, we're trying to come up with with attractive things that we know will will make people think, oh, that's something I should potentially fund. But by and large, it's kind of you know genuine passion and curiosity. I mean, most of the stuff that that I work on, most of the stuff that the people I know work on, they work on it because they're really interested in it, because they honestly want to know. And there's a um, there's like a genuine conscientiousness, a um, a real kind of sense of loyalty to some. I, and I should say I'm only talking about people working in the biological sciences here. There's, you know, people who study frogs, let's say, love frogs. And they're not working on frogs because they know that frogs are going to make them rich. In fact, the opposite is going to happen. Frogs are going to make them penniless. They're going to die alone. <laughs> but, but they will do all they can to help the frogs. And and I, you know, that's that's true. Um so and 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 so you know if you're passionate about frogs it's like well how many how many questions are there to ask about the way the froggy world works you know lots of people currently okay talking about frogs lots of people are putting a lot of time and effort into working out the um uh, exactly what's going on the link with climate change and, and habitat uh, modification to do with Botryca chloridium uh, dendrobotitis, this uh, killer fungus that's basically wiping out amphibians throughout the tropics, well, particularly in the American tropics. BD, BD it's called. So a lot of people, you know, you can understand people asking questions about that thing, not because they're thinking of money, not because there's some conspiracy they're trying to suppress, no, because they're honestly, genuinely passionate about this subject. And um, I've got a feeling I've gone on a, off on a massive <laughs> tangent well, here. No problem. <laughs> no, actually, this all t- I could tie it back together uh, thusly. Uh, so, in addition to the financial benefits of this book, <laughs> there must be other reasons to buy it as well. So, I, I know, you know, as a, a working scientist, you also need money. So, that listeners should please uh, give now. Uh, the number is on the screen. 
<laughs> but also, uh, there's this beautiful artwork in the book. Can you talk about the artwork just a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so John and Memo, uh, John Conway, Memo Cozman, CM Cozman. Um, so, for all the cryptids in the book, what is it? I think it's 28. Beautiful full size um, color, uh, full page, not full size, but um, yeah, novel color restorations of of these animals. So everything ranging from Bigfoot to Tizarek and, and all these uh, various cryptids. Um, yeah, novel, beautiful artwork, and um, both of them do stuff that's been quite praised by people who come from an arty bent as well as a scientific bent because it's a uh, well, I can tell you that John's style often recalls things like um, sort of oriental watercolours and kind of French Renaissance art and, and all styles, are kind of unfamiliar looking styles, which, um, which I think just means they look, they look novel, wonderful and interesting. So plus, plus, of course, they are depicting animals as, as if they're biologically plausible, genuine organisms. So anyone who like, you know, likes looking at Get, gets an art fix, looks for an art fix in a, in a book. We'll, um, we'll really enjoy this. Anyone who, who's seen, um, all yesterday's, our, our previous book on, on, uh, speculation in, uh, paleontology will, will get a kick out of this. And I think anyone who knows the cryptozoological literature that knows, um, something about the creatures will, will enjoy this. So, um, so yeah, the look of it, uh, I, I I love their stuff. Absolutely love their stuff. I mean, if I wasn't involved in it, yeah, I would I would just be nuts about this book. And um, like I say, it's kind of meant to be picture led. The book is meant to be about the artwork, with the text being secondary. But um, well, we ended up with, like I said, a bit more text than originally planned. But um, I think that's to the benefit of the book. Honestly, it's really good. Uh, one more question about the content. So in your, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it, but in your chupacabra uh, chapter, you, you describe the chupacabra in your um, speculative portion as being a uh, marsupial, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it, the, the binomial nomenclature you gave for it was, if I'm reading this right, <laughs> Dianaru caprophagus? Yeah. Okay. And and so I, I I was you didn't explain that I I'm guessing that's a joke. It's not it's not that funny. It's going to be a bit of a disappointment. But we came up with scientific names for all the animals that are meant to be, you know, plausible scientific names that we would give to these things if they really were real. And we came up with this idea. John actually wanted the the chupacabra. Incidentally, there's a mistake in the chupacabra section. We we originally had both spellings chupacabra ending in a and chupacabra ending in r a s. And uh, and I said, can you make sure that you? Uh, it was like a last minute edit. I said, can you make sure you replace one of the versions? And someone did change all throughout the document. So we actually have a bit where it says the chupacabra, also called the chupacabra, and those both, <laughs> both, the same spellings, which I find quite annoying. But um, John wanted it to be a, a giant bipedal marsupial, and at the time, due to because he in this case he did the artwork first, and we did the text later, and. While we were doing this, there was a paper published, and I can't remember all the details, so you have to excuse me, but it was saying that there's a living uh, – when we say opossum, most people think of the Virginia opossum, the, the big, mm-hmm. big whitey-gray one that you'll know very well, um, the being in America. Roadside <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, but uh, you, you may you may or may not know that there's actually uh, – quite a few of them are really horrendously aggressive, well-armed uber predators despite the fact that they're the size of a mouse or a rat and uh, there was a, a paper published on one of these south american ones saying that this opossum like 15 centimeters long or so 
is a saber-tooth, basically a saber-tooth predator, sort of, you know, similar to like a saber-tooth cat, but it's the size of your hand. And uh, so we had a bit of fun with that. We thought, well, let's have like a, a super-sized killer opossum. Because obviously, you know, the chupacabras, we know it's got uh, big stabby teeth of some kind. So dino roo, that merely means um, a terrible kangaroo type thing okay because so we also the roo part was right okay got it got it yeah yeah dino as in dinosaur means mean terrible but it doesn't mean terrible as in really bad it means terrible as in awesome um so people say dinosaur means terrible lizard it doesn't mean terrible as in they, they weren't very good <laughs> it means it means awesome like really super yeah oftentimes when people use it in a scientific name they contract it a little bit. So when Richard Owen in the 1840s came up with the wanted to name a bunch of reptiles dinosaurs, he contracted dinos into dino d-i-n-o, but it missed the same. It's the same meaning. And then the um, yes, you're right. The specific name Caprophagus specifically means uh, goat eating, which is uh, a bit silly. But you know, if the if the tuba capra was a real animal and if it, if it really was a giant um, uh, predatory bipedal nocturnal opossum, then maybe that's the name we would give it, Dinoroo caprophagus. So, <laughs> and, and many of the scientific names are kind of, you know, references, sort of jokes along along those those lines. Um, but then there are other creatures in the book where we actually haven't had to do much speculation, if any speculation, because, you know, if you use what's in the literature, well, people have done a pretty good job. You can't, what, what can you say about Sasquatch? Bigfoot or or the Yeti that isn't already in the books. I mean, you think of how many books there are on on Bigfoot. It's it's hard. You'd be really difficult. You couldn't come up with some explanation for Bigfoot that says it's not a uh, a giant bipedal striding hominid, right? If, if you came up with any alternative, that would just be, be ridiculous, ridiculous. right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I also responded to Stu- was a, a good one too. Oh, oh, yeah. oh good. I, I'm glad you like that one. I, I really enjoyed. Now, that was another one where um, quite a few of the, the, the speculative explanations were, were inspired very much by sometimes by things that cryptozoologists have said, but sometimes by the things that, that skeptics of cryptozoology have said. So, so Stupendaconda, and again, to get the full details, you have to read the book. But Stupendaconda is basically our gigantic uh, Amazonian anaconda so most most people are familiar with stories the the best known one is the colonel percy Fawcett one right where he he reported seeing a uh, and shooting an anaconda that was oh i've forgotten the size but it was ridiculous it was you know many many times bigger than yeah i I want to say it was good grief was it 60 feet long it was something crazy like that you know i i I think you're right i think it's about about that kind of size I'm, i'm gonna cheat and look at the book while i talk to you but um uh, one of one of the and, and and I do know cryptozoological researchers who honestly think that there really are um, that this that this really exists that there really are supersized Amazonian snakes that are many times bigger than the largest recorded anacondas and reticulated pythons. And since we're this is uh, a radio show, I'll just tell you that Darren is right now flipping through a beautiful copy of his book, looking for the reference. So nineteen nineteen meters long. Yeah, well, so then I was pretty close. Yay! <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and he said that he saw others, or he saw evidence for others that must have been, quote, altogether dwarfed by the one that he sh- that, that, that would have altogether dwarfed the one that he shot. So he claimed there were even bigger ones. So one of the things that I've heard from herpetologists, professional herpetologists, 
who regard this stuff as just you know tall tales, just ridiculous. They say that well, if they're really if, if anacondas, if there really was some kind of giant kind of anaconda that could grow this large and yet was different from the known anacondas, how come we don't have any juveniles or babies of them? Because of course people have collected wow millions of anacondas for the skin trade and and as museum specimens as well. So if there if there's another kind of anaconda that gets to ridiculous size approaching 20 meters and more you'd have baby ones of them so well we can get around this we can say well haha <laughs> maybe there aren't baby ones because the adults are so big they actually produce a uh, viviparity the ability to give birth to life babies is the norm in these kinds of uh, snakes in, in boas so if you got if you have a supersized species what about the idea that it just gives birth to one like supersized baby, which when it's born is already bigger than the biggest officially recognized snake? So, um, yeah, we, we had fun with ideas like that. So it's, it's informed by genuine things that, that cryptozoologists and skeptics of cryptozoology have said, and it's informed by stuff that's been published on the biology and the evolution of the animals concerned. And, you know, we, we, we cite references and, and everything, and there's some discussion in that section on Stupendaconda on... Um, uh, well, for example, uh, work by Jason Head, who, who you know very well. This this work on these giant, gigantic fossil snakes from Colombia. Um, this stuff on the uh, the reproductive biology of of living snakes, which is of known snakes, which is relevant to our hypothesis. So, so I would say it's kind of like you know informed, <laughs> informed speculative fiction. I loved it. Um, I thought, and I think the listeners will love it too. Uh, so. I think uh, I will do everything to get this episode out this week. So, <laughs> because Thank people, you. there's a turnaround time on ordering. So, if you get the ebook, you can get it instantly. But if you get the, uh, you want the paper copy, there's going to be some lead time there. You're going to need if you want, if you were the kind of person who would want to gift this to someone who loved monsters or yourself, uh, you need to act fast. So, link will be in the show notes. Great, yeah, yeah. I'm really happy so far with all the feedback we've got. I mean, brilliant stuff from. Uh, uh, thank you to you know Sharon Hill did a brilliant review the other day and um, Cameron McCormick really nice review and um, yeah quite quite a few uh, nice things online but so far there's a deafening silence from uh, some of our true believer cryptozoology colleagues and I don't I don't think they like it I think they're it's it's, they're it's not- you know I, it's hard to tell uh, you know uh, Daniel and uh, Don's book uh, it took a little while for the cryptozoology um, um, believer side to sort of chime in and it was uh, you know don kind of predicted how that would go and and daniel didn't think it would go quite as negatively but it yeah don, <laughs> don i think won that bet <laughs> so, yeah the interesting story behind that i've been following that as well yeah so and I, I love that book very impressed with it i think it's a, a brilliant um well well I, i've said this i think it's quite possibly the most important book on cryptozoology which uh, which did make some people quite cross yeah. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of like its level of scholarship and how oh, glossy, oh, shiny pages. Oh, yeah, beautiful. It's, it's, right. No, exactly. Yeah. Beautiful book. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. If, but don't if, buy that one. Buy the Cryptozoologic one because it's. <laughs> no, no. And you, you, I love the way you put your notes right at the end of each chapter. So uh, Don and uh, Daniel decided to put theirs at the end into this giant note section. I would have two parts of the book open because I was always flipping back check, checking yeah. checking the references they did a very thorough job there but very yeah very nice book really impressed with it so, but you did great notes mm-hmm. too and I love the artwork and I think uh, again I think listeners will really enjoy this and I appreciate your time I guess I should ask you again what's your favorite monster because it might have changed 
Um, looking around the room. Darren's looking around the room, looking for. <laughs> Trying to think of one. Well, uh, I don't know. I well, can't really think of a rim. What's your favorite uh, kaiju? <laughs> My favorite kaiju is probably um, uh, I'm rusty on all this stuff because I haven't seen it for a while. I can't remember their names. Knife head. Uh, I thought I thought he was he was pretty cool. Yeah. Is that is that his real name? What's his real name? Oh, I don't. Otachi was. I quite liked Otachi. That was the the flying one that turned out to be pregnant. Um, so it's quite spoilers. Quite animal. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. What, what about you? What, what? Well, I like Gypsy. <laughs> you know, I, I'm still, you know, uh, it's funny because uh, I, I still, my favorite kaiju is probably still Godzilla. Um, the, uh, and my favorite uh, Godzilla movie is still Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, the first one. Huh. But, but, All right. Uh, huh. I just, I loved it because they had the aliens. Uh, mm. <laughs> and then, and then there's the whole scene where um, uh, Godzilla's fighting Anguirus, and you're kind of confused. Why is Godzilla fighting Anguirus? I thought they had become friends. And then you find out it's not really Godzilla. You know, that was a spoiler. That's a yeah. real spoiler. Uh, that's a uh, spoiler. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I, quite, I quite like some of the newer ones. The fact that they tried to, you know, they developed increasingly complex plots. and Well, they did. Uh, right. They did. Yeah. And uh, even up to, uh, uh, Destroy what not uh, what's the big one the final wars yeah I like that final one. wars yeah the effects yeah, were a little hokey but uh, this is Blake I lost a little bit of the audio here Darren and I continued discussing Godzilla and then conversation turns to the new Godzilla film which is coming out in 2014 which we will pick up in progress now. <laughs> there's there's bits we see children getting evacuated and stuff. This isn't a Godzilla movie. Come on, where's the uh, for the first that first teaser trailer? The oh my god, that was that's epic. And, and I, I like. Yeah. I believe that that had to be a, a deliberate attempt to uh, what do they call that? Uh, Strays ending. Yeah, well, Strays ending and creating artificial scarcity. You know, see it oh, quick yeah, while yeah. you can. You know, <laughs> so yeah. Well, that's it because it's still quite hard to find yeah. online, to my knowledge. And, and I really, you know, it, it, that was a very beautiful trailer. And and uh, I, I, my son, uh, who is obsessed with Godzilla, uh, has been looking forward to this movie for two years now because they, it was going to be out this year and then they postponed it till next. Year year um, oh really yeah and so you know it's one of those things it's legendary pictures so i mean they're they're very competent with their digital effects um but if you go back to the original godzilla you know it's got this not the one with raymond burr but i mean the actual original godzilla gojira um it, it's got a um a really nice love story uh in it and it's very tragic but there's also a lot more about the uh the, the impact on the individual people walking around, you know, the, I, you sort of feel more about the disaster. It's very obvious people are dying mm. and, and, and mm. Godzilla makes his way through the city. Whereas in the later ones, it seems like they evacuate and everything's clear. You don't see that many cars driving around unless it's military yeah. vehicles. And let me just make one more complaint about those movies. <laughs> you kind of like wonder as the movies go on and they make clear it's a timeline of Godzilla attacking again and again and again. It's like, wouldn't somebody try to vote in a politician who would bring in a different strategy than the same damn missiles and tanks? It's like, we already know those don't work from that last time. Don't you remember, General? <laughs> when we have a giant wall around Tokyo right, or something. Yeah, something. The car. But yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a good point. It's a valid point. Yeah, but but uh, yeah, whether there is continuity from one movie to the next, oh, I don't know. Maybe it's parallel timelines and uh, um, different universes. Um, but it's, it's a it's a, val- it's a valid point. But uh, I do enjoy it. Yeah, I do. I love me a good monster movie. So, all right. Well, yes, Darren. Thank you for spending some time with Monster Talk. I appreciate it. 
Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. In today's episode, you heard scientist and author Darren Nash talk about the mysterious animals called cryptids and about his new book, along with John Conway and Mimo Kozman, Cryptozoologicon. A link to the books in the show notes. Darren Nash also blogs for Scientific American and is a podcaster. A link to his blog and podcasts are in the show notes as well. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. But I must warn you, the opinions expressed on this show are those of my guests and myself and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Hmm. Would you like to know about the official opinions of Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? You would? Are you sure? Well, if you would, here's how you can do this. Hey, don't try this if you're driving. But when you're able to access the internet without risking your life or the life of others... Do an internet search on your Yahoo or your Bing or your Alta Vista for these three magic words. Skeptic, magazine, app. With the tools you'll find there, you can unlock the mysterious official opinions of Skeptic Magazine. Thanks to the contributors who've continued to support this show despite my erratic release schedule. If you'd like to contribute to our ongoing efforts to get transcripts for every episode, go to mustertalk.org and click the donate button. It's way down at the bottom of the page, so keep scrolling. Come join the Monster Talk Facebook group, where you'll get updates on upcoming shows and be able to interact with other fans of the monstrous, fantastic, and scientific. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.